Hello, and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop, and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me on today's episode is Christian, partner at Silicon Valley Product Group, which was created to share senior level experience and best practices with technology companies. Christian has been a product leader for over 15 years, building and developing enterprise and consumer products that have shaped companies such as CareerBuilder, Merrill Corporation, as well as clients such as Starbucks, CarMax, and Macy's. Christian shared some incredible insights about his own career, how he actually got to this place where he's been able to make such a big impact on so many organizations. And so I really hope you tune into this and learn as much from him as I did. Enjoy. Welcome, Christian, and thanks so much for joining us on the Project to Product podcast. Thank you, Mika. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think like a lot of others who are listening to this, uh, the Silicon Valley product group has become infamous. As we, I think, all know, the, you know you're an absolute key part of that. It's, it's just been great chatting with you and, and learning more about what you do and how you've been such an instrumental part of this transition to product management, establishing a product management disciplines at, at multiple levels of the organization and how important that, a catalyst that is and just, just how much work there's left to do because uh, it was amazing to me you know, that, that your calendar is actually busier than a lot of the CEOs I, I meet with at these larger companies and the CIOs. So that's a sign. I think it's an important sign. But welcome. If you could just uh, start us off by telling us you know, how you ended up here, how you got into product management, how you landed with the Silicon Valley product group, that'd be excellent. Wonderful, and, and thanks for having me here. It's, uh, I think I got into product management like everybody did, unintentionally. <laughs> I, I learned product management from great product leaders and from failures. Um, I actually was uh, going to be a medical doctor, and I went to college, uh, pre-med. I decided to take a year off before going back to start medical school just to travel the world. And I ran out of wow. money about four months into it. And the fastest way for me to make any form of income was to actually go into sales. And so I started any form of my professional work in door-to-door sales. And I was selling back then like Visa, MasterCard from business to business. I became extremely successful at it. And I, I thought, why go back to medical school? I get a nice commission. This is great. Um, and one of the people I had worked with joined the company, uh, a startup at that time. And I decided to join them to, to sell to large accounts. Joining the company, I learned the company had an innovation competition, kind of a business plan competition. Anyone in the business could submit an idea. And if they loved it, you won the competition. You won a million dollars to start your own business. And I thought, well, that's great. you know. But they said, look, if you just make it to the top 20, you get like a $5,000 cash prize, the top 10. You keep get winning money as you get along. And I said, well, I don't have an idea, but I would love to win $5,000 if I can just make it to the top 20. And probably about a day or two before the competition closes, I talk to a bunch of people, customers and internal parts of the business, uh, look for latent problems. And I came up with an idea, submitted it to the competition, uh, a uh, few weeks later, Lenta had to defend the idea, and then I became shortlisted to the top 20. And I was like, oh, this uh-huh. is great. I am done. But they're like, no, you got to keep going. And nobody wanted to jump into this. It's like American Idol style. You have to stand and present and defend your idea and get through elimination in that way. And I made it to the top five, and you get all the board members and execs. You have to present. Anyway, I, I end up winning this competition. Um, I am uh, like 23 years old with a check for a million dollars to start a business. And wow. I have absolutely no clue what I am doing. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I used to joke, I, I probably cried my way back to my hotel room that night because I was like, what did I just sign up for? You know, I, I have no clue what I'm doing. And, and I had a technology-based idea. I had never built a technology business, a technology product. I spent a lot of time trying to write a business plan for how I will spend the money than spending the money or taking risk. And I thought maybe I should go back to medical school. This is too hard to do. But I figured out some of the nuances around how to start to build a business. I uh, grew that business to uh, over $10 million in the next 18 months. I had another idea. But wait, 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 I, stop. What was, what was the idea? What was the, this was your technology? The this idea? was actually the, the, the first uh, e-learning 
uh, uh, platform that uh, existed. It got many of the components got sold. So the company I did this for was a job board, and they help people find uh-huh. jobs. And when people will be looking for jobs, I realized that you know if you look at a job and it says it requires you to be skilled at Microsoft Excel, and you didn't have that skill, um, you'll have to either you know, go find how to upskill yourself or not qualify for the job. And so the idea was, how quickly can I upskill people when they see an opportunity that they are fit for and bridge the skill gap so that they could apply to the job? And so I put kind of real-time e-learning within the job board, right? So if you're applying to a job and it says, you know, I need to be better at communication, can I train you and certify you in communication in a couple of hours and equip you to come back and apply to that job. And that was kind of the idea, this integrated e-learning platform. And as you can imagine, the, the list of skills were, were probably as unlimited as, as could be. And, and this became a, a big challenge kind of growing this. And we built a catalog of the, the, the highest amount of industry skills in the country at that time. And so, you know, I just loved the idea of growing the business with the challenges. I had another idea. I ended up winning the competition again. And and at this point, the CEO was like, well, it seems like you like coming up with ideas and doing things. Why should we wait for a competition or every year for you to submit the idea? Why is it? Why can I just give you an innovation budget? If you have an idea, just try it. And this was my first introduction into any formal discipline of innovation management, mm. product innovation. There was not a product management discipline back then. And so I uh, failed woefully at the next 18 ideas I had. I mean, it was a complete disaster in terms of being able to create any traction or meet any outcome. Nobody went at anything I was coming up with. And I started to reflect, why was I really successful at the first two? And I was going through failure after failure. Hmm. And a couple of things stood out. I, I was doing an MBA then. I was doing a master's in project management then because those were the reigning topics in the world back then. And they were actually eroding my effectiveness <laughs> at building products because I, I I was riddled with so much assumptions. I was making decisions from a conference room. I stopped being curious, asking questions to customers, spending my time out with engineers. And so I said, well, you know, all of the engineers building I, in Atlanta, I was in Chicago. I was like, what if I went closer to them and I spent time with them? And what if I took them to go meet customers and I started to validate the ideas I had before I started to build them? And this is actually uh, how I learned product through a series of massive failures, uh, objectively rejecting the education that I had with project management and with my MBA, very interestingly, uh, because I found out every single data point I had, every single set of insight I had or had written down became obsolete the very next day. And that, uh, you know, adding real value to customers was a continuous process. I had to constantly immerse myself in the environment of customers, learn about the problems, define and identify them, and then discover meaningful solutions to them. Now, I have not had a, a single product failure since that streak, and, and I build two new products every single year in my life. I go from idea to, to a full-fledged business just as a way to, to keep it. So I've done over 200 products uh, at this point now, um, and that was meaningful. Uh, for me. So I, I ended up a, a leading product at another small startup and then joined a, a big legacy organization uh, that wanted to move from projects to products, that wanted to transform from waterfall to agile, from on-prem to cloud, had no real product infrastructure. And I spent a lot of time really helping the organization transform into a modern SaaS company. Um, and through my career, I've had a, a great mentor and coach, Mary Kagan, um, who has been a champion of really this kind of thinking. And I mean, he wrote the book after I had failed. So I always like, where were you when I needed all the help? I had to learn it the hard way. Uh, but I think it really, um, uh, you know, we, we philosophically really had the same values and experience about uh, how the best companies in the world build products and how the rest of, of the world does it. And so I joined the Silicon Valley product group. They are five product partners. Um, we are all people that have built products, people that have led product teams, managed product teams, have been product executives, been through meaningful transformations of organizations. And, and all we do is just really curate what we see 
that works very well in the most innovative companies and try to convince other companies that they can work in a similar manner or better. So, so that's kind of a, a kind of a, a flash note of my career. So you're still up. You've gone back to upskilling. <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Uh, it, it's uh, every single thing you learn in your career is used in the future. You just don't know it until you <laughs> So I want to rewind just a little bit because that was that observation that you just made. You were in your MBA. You were learning project management. This is, and I guess this is probably mid, mid-2000s, mid right, that you're doing yes. this? Yeah. Yes, early 2000s. So yeah. yeah, so this is really before product management is talked about and established as, as, as a discipline. Yeah. I mean, I think we'd yeah. all been doing it, right, in the, the late, you know, early 2000s. I was doing agile product development and open source, and we were applying the same concept. So we certainly weren't calling it that. You know, you already had tech companies doing right. it uh, in the in the Bay Area. But what if you could just reflect a, a bit more on that? Because I think some of what some of the challenges that I know I see in the industry in, in this shift is is what you very quickly noticed and serves the I guess the dissonance between what you were learning in your MBA in project management and all these interesting things as you know, managing things to cost and low variability and making these very long, robust plans that, that always yes. uh, work out. So it's actually your, your experiences with innovation is that this, what you were learning, it sounds like it was countering to what you'd learned by living innovation and understanding. Absolutely. Yeah, so tell us more about that. Yeah, so, so um, I think we, we won't just put out some articles uh, on some pathologies and we have the CSPO, like the, the certified scrum master product owner pathology. And we just did one on the MBA pathology. Um, so I was doing a master's in business administration and a master's in project management, because those were the topics that I thought at that time, if you really wanted to deliver results to a business, you needed to have a deep understanding of the business and a deep understanding of what it took to execute. And I felt those were important uh, facets for me. But the MBA education itself uh, was not grounded in the reality of the world. And there were a couple of uh, misnomers, for lack of a, a better term, that really started to drive poor mindsets in what we need for products. So a couple of things. One, there's not real teaching in an MBA or master's program on some of the soft skills that are important to do this work, uh, like empathy or emotional uh, intelligence, communication, your ability to collaborate very well and communicate well with stakeholders. But there were a couple of things that uh, I started to observe. One, my MBA was teaching me more of how to tell people what to do than how to work with people to solve problems. Interesting. And I got very comfortable with the executive team presenting fancy PowerPoints and stuff to them and then getting their blessing and then providing direction to a group of engineers. The MBA taught me heavily how to use people as resources, as a, a number on an expense sheet, how to allocate resources and spend money meaningfully by kind of uh, uh, ensuring that all of those resources served the needs of the business rather than how to build teams to solve problems for customers. So it reinforced some of those things there. Now, while the MBA highlighted the importance and impact of risk, there were no practical tools to tackle them. And it was uh, you know, really based on what we knew with no techniques to tackle what we didn't know. Right, how to tackle the things that we were not certain about. And you, you learn how to write an elaborate business plan and a business case, and it's riddled with assumptions and not evidence. And it never translated down into anything factual. We were picking projects based on what we believed the business plan uh, said. And it's, it's almost like the better you were at writing the business plan, the more likely you were to getting funding than right. the more meaningful the problem was and how meaningful your solution to that problem was, right? So, you know, this is a false mindset of, of people as numbers, uh, using resources according to budgets and, and scope, learning Gantt frameworks, models, analysis. All of those things started to become really obsolete in the real world because you realize that the data set that you got yesterday is very different when you go to execute. You know, more importantly, I think the most significant part for me is it didn't help me understand what I needed to do with customers. I was not spending enough time with customers. I was really making a lot of my decisions and assumptions and not validating with the people I was trying to solve a problem for. And so 
you know, there, there are many things that business school was good for. It was good for a factory mindset. It was good for a command and control mindset. It was good for project thinking. It was good for connections with people that want to talk in that language and communicate in that language. But when it came down to truly meaningfully solving problems for people, right, that solving problems for the business, it continued to fall short. And once I realized that, um, fortunately for me, I think I was doing my MBA while I was practicing product right. and innovating. So I had an opportunity to unlearn and take away what was meaningful and not harden this mindset. Many people don't get that fortunate. People go years in their career, growing up in the ladder of becoming executives and leaders, reinforcing this executive MBA mindset, or this command and control mindset. Really an interesting time in my career. I, I, I tell people it's the least thing I credit to my success, but I am fortunate that I went through it to understand why it was not meaningful. Christian, this is just, I mean, that's an amazing story. And I think that the thing that really strikes me is that the, the people I work with you know, day to day who are trying to transform, trying to shift organizations to product, they they have the same background that you were getting, right? They come from MBAs typically, right? This is this is what's created yeah. the enterprise organizations that we have is, is, is those programs and those leaders. And the same learning, and un, I think your point on unlearning is key, that unlearning that you did as you were going through this because you, you had that juxtaposition, they're all needing to do right now, right? And yes. they're realizing yeah. it. I, I actually, one thing that's that struck me that's been amazing over the course of especially the last six months to a year is the amount of product content in these learning management systems, product management executive masterclasses within you yeah. know, large banks, large organizations, large manufacturers. I'm gonna ask you, so I think there's, I think the unlearning point is key. And if you could just, you, you touched on it, but you touched on it very briefly. I think some people struggle with understanding why, why have we learned the wrong things? And you, know, you mentioned is that the data changes, the customers, you know, we don't have that much certainty on the customer when markets are changing, but why, I think you've got a, you know, you've got a perspective I don't on, I've not done an MBA, now and then I think about it, but I've had to keep learning and unlearning on the job. So why do you think that the MBA curriculum does not work for innovation? And, and I think your, your, your points on innovation are key here, but it, it does work for certain kinds of innovation. It does work in some other industries. Why do you think it doesn't work for software? Well, when you think about the most innovative companies in the world, um, they are core things that are unique to those companies. One is how is that they, they do their best to tackle their risk up front, the things that they don't know. They try to answer as many of those questions up front. These teams work very collaboratively to solve problems, not sequentially, not in handoffs. And they focus heavily more on business results, which while many of these programs talk about results, they, they really are designed to in, in some ways, reward output over those outcomes. Now, the, the core cross of, crux of empowered teams is that uh, those teams should exist to solve problems for customers in a way that works for our business, as opposed to serving the business, right? You know, people ask me kind of, what do you mean by value? And when I talk about value, I say, well, if you solve a problem in a meaningful way, you create value. And at some point, organizations recognize that if we create value for customers, we create value for ourselves. So we should hire smart people to keep creating value for customers because that's how we win. However, what happens here is that many of our business training reinforces almost a factory mindset, mm -hmm. right? You know, we've got to fund projects, things that are start and stop within the scope of uh, you know, what we want to accomplish, how much is it gonna cost us, how long is it gonna take us, and that if we execute that well repeatedly, we're going to start with, and we deliver a ton of outputs, we will get the outcomes we want. Uh, this mindset erodes trust, it reinforces unfortunately some form of a command and control environment where people are like factory objects. And so you have a bunch of smart people that are hired and we spend all of our time telling them what to do than giving them problems to solve for us. That foundationally, I think, is the big flaw we, or, or area where these MBA programs fall short, is that 
while they want to equip people with an executive mindset, how to lead, how to support teams, how to read reports, prepare plans, and have a strategy, uh, they're not grounded in the reality that in today's modern world, where we use technology to solve problems for people, uh, the group of people that we're equipping to do this, the engineers, the designers, um, these are very smart people. Yeah. And you get better return from giving them the problem to solve than telling them what to do, right? And so if the MBA is t- teaching us all the ways to tell people what to do <laughs> with a plan, with a strategy, with the goal-setting methodology, with the key metrics and how to, you know, fund them and stuff. And we, so we shift. We get very good at funding projects. We get very good at funding initiatives and not good at building teams, not good at pulling the right cross-functional group of people and giving them problems to solve and trusting them that they will come up with better solutions than we could. I've uh, I've been I often get asked with the Flow framework. It's it's all about establishing these product value streams where you del- deliver value. And I can't tell you how many organizations you know they'll have. Uh, I'll be speaking to them and they'll spend the last six months defining top down their product value streams, how they map onto their application portfolio, and all of this. And then they ask me, well, you know. Wait, what should our value streams would be like? And I say, your value streams are there. They're, they're, they're the people. The value streams are just they're the people. You have to give them the right work, the right problems to solve to drive, you know, drive outcomes. But value streams are people. So I think it's, it, it sounds simple, but I think you're you're hitting on such a key point that again we see in these. And maybe you could speak to this MBA pathology sum that you mentioned, where pushing all of this down in the wrong ways rather than get, again establishing stable teams and teams of teams that can learn and solve problems and deliver value to the customer. I love how you said that, right? It's about delivering up value to the customer, not the business. Because I think one of these common pathologies I see as well is this is just this complete separation of the business throwing things over. One way, lack of feedback loop, lack of learning. And then was it delivered to the business? You're not, you're not leveraging, as you said, any of that talent that you've put into technology to actually solve that, those problems, come up with innovation and come up with unique solutions. So what is... Is is that the MBA pathology? Is is it that Taylorist pushing down of of work rather than establishing learning and feedback loops? Yeah, well, well, I think if you if you if you were to break it down, you know, the, the pathology is grounded in a couple of things. You know, one is not knowing what knowing what you can't know, right? The idea that it doesn't teach us how to tackle those risks. It, exposes them and it's almost like, uh, you know, there's a risk management plan, but not the way to, to answer the, or tackle the risk up front. Uh, the belief in predictability, you know, the religion of business cases, those blind faith in business analytics, uh, mm-hmm. those things um, kind of eroding that. I, I mentioned the role of technology and you called that out, you know, the role of technology as a cost center rather than an enabler of the business. It's, it's not like we are not, we, instead of saying we're like a technology company, we use technology to solve problems for customers. You know, we are a retail company and, you know, we need to build a website. You know, we are an insurance company and we need a little technology platform. So what's the cost of that, right? And, and you know, the reinforced scan of those resources become engineers and designers. They, they're like subordinates, right? So I'm going to use them and I may outsource them. Uh, more importantly, the command and control leadership style, right? So rather than providing context to people, uh, they are using control to to get things to get things done. Um, you, you know, when I think about the core of management versus leadership, which is in some ways uh, what I was hoping many MBA programs will help people get good at, is uh, really how to lead teams and how to manage teams. You know, leadership for me is providing context and culture, right? Clarity about why we're here, where we're going, how we plan to get there, what's important right now, how do I organize the teams to do that? And culture being the environment that we do that why, right? And management for me is being able to find, attract, equip, recruit people, but more importantly, to coach them to their potential and to coach them to competency and to their potential and to align them with those objectives. You know, if that were an MBA program, it will make more of a meaningful dent in today's world. People that are good at getting people better than people that are good at telling people what to do. And, and that's, that cycle, unfortunately, repeats itself because you have so many managers today that have not experienced good management, so many people today that have not experienced good leadership. And so when they grow up in their career, they continue to reinforce what they've experienced because that's all they know. Fascinating. So 
the thing I'm seeing, by the way, is some of this is making it into MBA programs now. It's it's just coming too late to make an impact on organizations today. So some of the work that that Stephen Spears has been doing at, at MIP, MIT, it's happening. But again, it's the, that's for the next generation of students. So you've taken it on yourself to to actually help make a difference with this generation of leaders, right? You, you've been doing that executive coaching. How how do you how do you approach this? Because my perspective on this is is you know. What I've taken on is just is actually measuring these value streams, measuring flow, and then seeing these pathologies. But but these pathologies won't go away until you've got the right culture, the right context, and the right leadership. So so what do you do <laughs> when you, when you've got you know you, you, I'm sure you, you're facing this regularly when you engage with these with these large organizations trying to get through this. How do you start pointing them in in this direction that you've discovered over the, the past couple of decades? And and you called it out on coaching. In some ways, we we cannot give what we don't have. And I have to recognize that and come to terms with that. When I when I mentioned a, a big reason we, we have this uh, deficiency in our generation of leaders and managers is because they've not experienced good leadership or management. And most of the time, if I want to get a leader good at coaching, I have to coach them, <laughs> right? I have to coach them so that they have something to pass on to people. The core crux for me is first I have to make sure people recognize the coaching mindset. And the coaching mindset for me first is that you recognize that your job is not to do the job of your team. Your job is to get your team better (laughs) at doing their job. And that coaching is the number one job. Now, what that means is, um, you know, I I tell the story of how micromanagers are born, right? It's like, Mick is a great engineer. He does excellent at his job. He's been there for, you know, eight years. He's feeling uneasy. I'm not growing. I'm not getting anywhere. People like me as an engineer. And organizations say, well, the next logical step is to promote Mick to a manager, right? (laughs) And now Mick has never managed anybody in his life. He's never hired, fired, trained, and, you know, few weeks into the job, he recognizes he's not very competent in management. And the second an engineering problem comes across, he jumps in to do the work because he's a better engineer than a better engineering manager. And this cycle repeats itself because it's we don't create the safe place for people to say, I don't know how to be a manager. I have never learned how to be a manager. You know, my even my MBA did not equip me mm-hmm. <laughs> on how to deal with people problems, on how to to improve collaboration, create culture, create an environment for greatness to come out in people. And so, w- when I spend time with executives, on one end, I always say all problems are people problems, and if all problems are people problems, people problems are leadership problems. And I call out to people, you know, DevOps is a people problem. You know, tech debt is a people problem. You know, metrics, is about, focus, all of these things. And so I want to spend time with leaders and managers and executives. And I say, look, we're going to ground ourselves in what we've observed. Um, we don't have a strong product management competency. We're not coaching and equipping people. We're not focused on outcomes and the right flow in your environment. We're not uh, focused on value or solving problems for customers. We're not. We're struggling with our approach to delivery. Uh, we don't have a culture of learning or innovation. And at the end of the day, all of these things are leadership problems. They are management problems. And so I want us to really focus on equipping you with the things you need. And you know that's the that's why we wrote our book Empowered, which was focused on leaders because we kept training product teams on how to work well and, and the techniques that these companies use. And you you kept feeling that they were hitting this artificial ceiling. And it's like, yeah. what's going on? Well, the environment was not there for them to succeed or thrive. And so you know, the whole goal now is to equip those leaders with what they need, how to create context, right? clear mission, a clear vision, a clear product strategy, empower teams with objectives, how to create culture, how to staff, how to coach, how to uh, align people to objectives. That's been the premise of a, a lot of my executive coaching. That's awesome. And I think you know, that, that artificial ceiling, I think you know, Agile started 20 years ago, and I think it, it was always meant to be customer-centric. It was meant to be these, these lean principles. It was, it was around the, like, the Steve Blank world of lean canvases that, that were coming. But in these large organizations, it hit that artificial ceiling. Then DevOps has been hitting that artificial ceiling. And now I think you're experiencing product management with the same thing. And it's, it's so I guess what you're saying actually is it, it's the same ceiling. And that ceiling yes. is leadership. Yes. It's not, it, it, look, 
I, 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 I see Agile in so many companies and it, it hurts me because people are focused on the activity than yeah. the outcome, on the reason or kind of why they want to do it. And they still, you know, I look at teams and I say, go and pull all the principles of Agile. And if your organization is not reaping the benefits of Agile, you're not Agile. Like, you know, and the driver here is, you know, the focus on all of the ceremonies than the benefits of doing the ceremonies. Oh, so, yeah, we want to have stand-ups. But the idea about it is to improve communication, but communication is your number one pain point that everybody complains about, you, you know? And, and we have to go down to the crux. Part of it is the environment for DevOps, for Agile, for product management, for, for even project management historically to thrive. I mean, the reason we many companies make the shift from project management to product is that they find that in today's day and time, those project manage project management mindsets are failing to deliver the same kind of results. But that's because the role of technology has to shift. Our customers are becoming very different. They are more sophisticated. They are depending on things. There's trends like, you know, expecting uh, the consumerization of the enterprise, yeah. expecting Apple-like products in your workflow. You know, those kinds of things are changing the demand. We cannot, and we're not moving fast enough with those projects. Now, that goes back to leadership. Now, the, the leadership has not changed. The expectations of uh, command and control, I want it now and I want it fast. I want a date. I want clarity. I want all my answers today and the failure to deliver. Those things have not changed. So if I could pick and place a bet on the most critical aspect to truly shift organizations or make transformations happen or drive this uh, meaningful uh, uh, shift in our industry, it would be on leadership and management. If they, are, if they know how to build trust, if they know how to empower teams, if they know how to coach people to greatness, and if they know how to create an environment for those people to succeed, we will have a very different generation. Yeah, and so I think the problem becomes is helping this generation of leaders and managers do it, right? There's, you know, we, we don't yes. want to wait for the next generation. So, Christian, can you give an example where, because I think, again, this, this will resonate with everybody, what you're saying, and I think it's, it, it really is, I think that this is the crux of the problem, right? My goal has been to, to provide a common way of looking at measuring value and outcomes, right? And I've, I've seen that helping, but it's, it's not enough. More is needed. More of this, this coaching and context and culture is needed. So can you take us through an organization that, that, uh, where, the leaders, where leaders listened, where you, where you actually saw... And I'm seeing more of this, I think. So I'm getting more optimistic. I think I'm getting more optimistic. But but take us take us through you know some example that resonated with you where where you were able to provide some of that coaching, and and that change happened, and and that artificial ceiling broke. In many cases, I I, I cannot credit as much of the organization as I would the leaders in those organizations for the meaningful change. In, in many cases, crediting the CEO for some form of corporate courage to own their transformation and to lead it. I, I had a big, uh, large company, uh, one of the biggest companies in the world, and um, you know, they had just spent a lot of money uh, bringing an external firm to do a long-term strategy and vision for them. And uh, I just got in to do like a 90-minute talk to their leadership and their board, and I spent time with the, with the leaders in there and they all introduced themselves. They had been there for 20 years, 30 years, been at the company, all grown their career within the organization in that way. And the chairman of the board comes aside and he said, look, I have been telling my leaders for a long time, I want to be a modern tech company. Mm -hmm. We want to compete with the Amazons of the world. And I have been saying this for over a decade now, and I've not seen any meaningful traction. And I said, I loved everybody I met. They are great leaders, great people. I enjoyed getting to know them. But do you have anybody on your leadership team that has come from a technology company? I said, no. Um, do you have anybody that has uh, learned about, have, has built a technology company before or you know, gone through a transformation of a legacy company? He said, no. He said, but I, I have told them to go hire people that have done this, to bring in that talent to help us. And I said, well, have, do you have anybody that has hired somebody <laughs> to do this before? Uh, a technology person or stuff? He said, no. I said, so you're, you're asking them to do something they've never done before. They don't have a skill set or experience to do so. And the second they meet somebody like Mick, smart, bright, driven, they'll feel threatened by him because he looks like he's coming to take their job. <laughs> and I said, this has to fall on you as the most senior leader. 
You have to first yeah. equip your organization with the skills you need to succeed. And if that skill is, I need to change how we view technology in the company, not as a cost center, but as an enabler, yeah. not as, you know, to serve the business, but as the business. So let's get a strong technology leader in here. Now, they brought a strong technology leader in here, kind of Tita Sej brought a, a leader from a firm. And I said, look, this is not your silver bullet. But what this person does is they start to normalize behavior yeah. that may look otherwise strange to the other leaders. Like, oh, we're spending a lot of time with customers. I've never seen this in my 30-year career. Something must be wrong or this is perfectly normal. You know, oh, we're spending a lot of time focused on outcomes and giving things problems. And that was key in that executive coaching to get the leader to see that and start to take action. And then we tactically started to create the environment, right? So, you know, if a leader's job is to create a vision, where are we going? How do we plan to get there? How do we organize ourselves to get there? How do we equip teams with problems and empower them? And then looking at the culture, it, it does take lots of courage to make this change and to build a strong organization to support it. Christian, to me, this has been the, the role of kind of the most senior leadership. To me, this has been quite a surprise. If you'd asked me two years ago whether we would be, be seeing CEOs of global, you know, Fortune, global 200 companies involved in this, I would have said, well, hopefully, but, but don't get your hopes up. Uh, <laughs> you know, earlier this week, I actually, I, I saw one of these transformations that had the right leadership context. And the thing that was fascinating to me about it is I, I actually met with the CEO of, a, of a, one of the top global banks. And I was surprised that he, ha he was getting directly involved in it. And it's not, of course, all these CEOs are saying, we need to become a tech company. We need to be the Amazon of our industry. And, and all these, th these things have been being said for 20 years, right? But, yes. but he actually got involved. And then and the, this is on the back of another CEO who got involved recently as well. And, and it was surprising to me. But what I've come to realize is that often the CIOs, the chief digital officers, CTOs, they're hamstrung because the business is continuing to function the, the way they have with some of the pathologies you described. You've got this massive technology organization, but, but nothing is really changing but the relationship between the business and where the customers and this completely siloed technology organization. So I, I think you're right. I, I, think, I think that it's, it's fascinating that you know, with these companies with tens or hundreds of thousands of staff, you actually have to get the CEO sponsoring the, the right culture and context for this to happen. Yes, and because it's beyond product and technology. Yeah. You, you realize the impacts, uh, you know, there, has, there have to be fundamental changes to finance, to yeah. how you fund things, to, to HR, to how you hire, to sales, marketing, support. So you, you have to have, you know, the CEO is that leader that brings all of those groups together and talks about the meaningful change beyond product. A lot of your work is, has been studying and understanding you know, what does this look like? What's, you know, wh what is the path? Where do you end up? How do the best do it? So, so give us your perspective on that in terms of the, the things that, and you know, sometimes it's a, obviously it's a longer journey with these large organizations. I think you and I have both seen missteps. As I mentioned last week, I, uh, I presented to, uh, it was about, I think, 1,500 product managers at a very large company. And I learned as I was about to present that Two, I think two or three weeks earlier, all of them had the title project manager. <laughs> and this was, <laughs> this was the kickoff for putting in place the product management practice. So I think the leadership in that company might have thought that was, okay, we, we, you know, we're on the right path. We've renamed our, our project managers to product managers. But, but in terms of uh, back to upskilling and, yeah. and having the right kind of talent and context, it, it might be a little challenging for them. So what, I, that's probably not some of the, the common patterns of what the best do. What, what, or that certified product manager thing. I'd, like to, I'd love to, uh, for us to hear about that as well. But, but tell us, how do the best do it? So, so I had mentioned earlier that, uh, well, this, unfortunately, I, there's a vast difference between the best and, and the rest. It's, uh, you always think like, yeah, maybe we're yeah, people in the middle. It's almost uh, black and white in some ways. Yeah, it's, um, that's amazing to me. The, 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 it's, it's like a hundred, a thousand order magnitude difference between the best. Yeah, yes. it's, 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 it's always amazing. You kind of always hope, like, maybe they are somewhere in. Yeah. And, and it goes back to, we talked about the role of technology. We talk about the kinds of teams, right? We talk about product teams being given problems. They are empowered to come up with a solution. And then they are measured on solving the problem. Then you've got those deliver, uh, um, future teams that are given roadmaps of futures and projects to go dis, you know, design and deliver. And most of the 
product managers, they are like project managers because they have a day. You know, you, you cannot uh, tell me this is important, Mick, and at the same time, this is urgent, and then expect me to focus on the important, right? So those cycles of urgency in here. So, you know, there are a couple of patterns. If you, one of the ways I look for uh, what we call missionary versus mercenary culture, uh, kind of a John Deere, do a term. I go to an engineer in a company and I say, hey, what are you working on? Engineer might say, I'm, I'm you know, building a new app, I'm building this API and building a mobile solution. I say, well, why are you doing it? If the engineer says, well, uh, my product manager told me to do it. I see it's a culture where you're a mercenary or it's the next story on my backlog. It was assigned to me, right? The, the engineering team being disconnected from the why. They don't mm -hmm. understand why we're doing things, the outcomes we're going after. A big indicator in the best companies is that all the engineers are so connected to the why. Yeah. They, are, they, they overlead the why. You know, you say, what are you working on? Oh, we're trying to grow revenue. By 20, but oh, we're trying to improve customer satisfaction. We're trying to fundamentally change how customer, you know, they're talking about customer problems and business problems and the outcomes they want. This is so consistently true. And so I tell people, look, I might teach techniques to do discovery. I might teach frameworks, models, all of these things. But if, if I were to come back uh, three years from now and I really wanted to look at your company and say, you've made the the significant shift from project to product or have a product mindset or you're working in an innovative way. Those are the things I look to be true. Like before you do anything, did you try to answer as many questions up front? Did you do discovery before you did delivery? How do you work? I think still coming in handoffs is this, the leader wants to build things, tells the product manager, who tells the designer, who gives it to the, to the engineer, are they 10 layers of people or do people just come together to solve problems? For customers, right? And then finally, like, uh, do you reward, focus on dates and futures or outputs, or do you focus on those outcomes? And and those are the things I say, look, if, if those things are culturally true, with that kind of mindset, you've made the shift, right? And, and uh, you know, all of those different frameworks, they, they enable you to do it, but the core benefits <laughs> of, of doing this in a meaningful way is that you trust people to solve problems. You hire a competent group of people, give them problems to solve, and empower them to, to solve them for you. Could not agree more. Okay, so on this path, you mentioned John Doerr. I, I have to ask this because I've been, I've been studying it a lot lately. OKRs, friend or foe to this? <laughs> I always say OKRs uh, will stand for OK, this really sucks. Um, <laughs> but let me be clear. Um, I love the OKR framework. The, the uh, fundamental rift here, I, I talked about important and urgent, is cultural. Yeah. You know, people tell me I'm struggling with OKRs, and I say, oh, you know, do you have a culture like Google? They say, no. Well, it works in a culture like Google. Let me explain what I mean by culture like Google. They give their teams problems to solve. Do you give your teams problems to solve? No. So you're giving them OKRs, and then you also give them roadmaps, right? That is like back to urgent versus important. You are literally saying, what's important? Make yeah. customers happy. What's urgent? Build my mobile app on Tuesday. What yeah. do you think the teams are going to focus on? Building the mobile apps on Tuesdays. Also, many companies don't stick with it, right? Because it's yeah. one of those muscles where people start to get very critical at like, your wording is not right. This doesn't sound empowering. You know, and people forget that OKRs are an empowerment tool and an alignment tool. That means they are a cultural tool. <laughs> if you don't have an empowered environment with clarity of context and alignment, they are doomed to fail. You know, that's that's just what you're setting it up to. So so in some ways, you know, it is less about the OKR framework. Same back, back to our conversation about yeah. Agile. Yeah. <laughs> it's less about, but it fails, Agile fails to deliver meaningful results, not because teams are not working in small, frequent releases. I know many companies that have gotten there, but because they are failing to do the other part, which is empowering their teams and focusing on the customer. You see, so, so it's back to those kinds of cultural mishaps. Yeah, and it's interesting because a pattern I've seen, I've, I've certainly used this, you know, with OKRs to the failure patterns I think we've both seen, like they actually become due dates and they become waterfall roadmaps for <laughs> that, that actually take away from learning and experimentation and discovery and, and all the good things you talk about. 
Um, when I've, when you actually make these OKRs around learning outcomes and creating that cultural context, I'll, I'll give you an example. Of the, you know, one of my, the favorite ones I've experienced at, at Tastop is you know, one of our OKRs is around happiness of the team of our value streams, and we measure that for each product value stream. And so, if when we saw uh, the employee of Morse code dropping, you know, you have your managers, your leadership solve problems, and they realized that software architecture getting in the way of that product delivering to its customers was a big problem. They decided to invest in architecture and did some replatforming, and all of a sudden, employee engagement goes up, and we know happier people solve problems better and, and deliver better software. So there, it's. I, I do think there is, and that is the goal, and that is that is the cultures where they've worked is is when it is about learning and improvement, and and I think again, if you don't have those things, it's they will fail, right? Because it'll just be another framework misapplied. Christian, well, this is this has just been amazing. We're, we're almost at time. I've got about eighteen more questions for you. Any, but tell me anything else in terms of you know guidance that that you want to put out there and some of the things that you think are, are most important for people who, again, we've got you know, some people who are trying to you know, break through that artificial ceiling from the top down, some people have been hitting their heads on it every, every morning when they wake up. So you know, the, the first next step, some of the kind of you know, key, key coaching that you, you've seen resonate yeah. and key cultural niches we've seen resonate that, that really people can walk away from this podcast with. Look, for, for individual contributors, um, uh, We've got to come to terms with what we can control. Yeah. Um, often people, yeah, we kind of get on the soapbox with leaders and managers and they get comfortable blaming them for the reasons that their work environment is not great and they are unable to um, yield meaningful results. Uh, there are several things that people in the role of product management, engineers, designers, project managers or delivery managers can start to do today. To, to support that environment. I, I often challenge teams and I say, look, in all fairness, your leadership and management is not creating the environment for you to thrive, sure. But it actually is easier for them to make that shift one day and say, you know what, you're right. We're not providing clarity of context. We're not providing the culture and giving teams problems. Let's sort this out. And they can come back and be like, all right, we've sorted this out. Now what? Now your leaders have given you a problem to solve rather than telling you what to do. They're not saying, go build a mobile app. They're saying, go grow my business by 20%. Yeah. That's what you've always wanted. They're saying, you're smart, we've trusted you. Do you know what to do with that? <laughs> do you know what to do now that you've actually been given the problem and space? A couple of things I find is when I challenge leaders and I say, you've got to focus, you're doing way too much. And a leader says, you know what? You're right, I'm going to focus on one thing. And they give it to the team. The team all of a sudden flips around and comes up with 20 different things to do. Because this cycle has been fed. If, if leaders focus, teams don't. When teams complain that there are too many priorities <laughs> to teams all the time. So I tell teams, um, you've got to build a muscle of discovery, a, a muscle of learning, a, create a culture of learning, a culture of experimentation. You have to be comfortable tackling risk um, asking questions, discovering solutions, spending time with customers. This is a discipline that you do not get better at without practice. It's just one of those. There are no textbooks you can read. There are no articles that will make you better at talking to customers. The only thing that will make you better at talking to customers is talking to customers. Yeah, it's interesting because I think so often I do, and I, and I understand the frustration to hear teams say, you know, that's the culture's wrong, you know, th th this doesn't work here. But what you said earlier in the podcast, where you actually decided to, I don't know the backstory here, but, but to take engineers to customers. It's, yes. uh, I've definitely noticed this, the, the, the teams, you know, kind of feeling this, this victim attitude at the same range. Like, why don't you, you know, your customer might be in your building. They might be a Zoom call away because it's an internal customer for so many of these large organizations. So part of me, I have not really been saying this, but part of me wants to say is what, what, what's stopping you? And I feel like you're, you're kind of saying what's stopping you? You as a team can, can go do this tomorrow. Go, go sit with them. It's a mindset. It's a mindset, make look. The, I, I challenge teams about that all the time. The best products I have built in the world, my engineer had a name in the back of their head. Meaning yeah. they didn't say, we're building this app. They're saying, I'm trying to help make life get better. They could connect with customers. It's the biggest trick I have when I want to have an engineer fix a bug or a defect. I take them to a customer. I would just hang out and the customer says, oh, I saw this error or problem in my in my app or in, my, in the application, engineers don't like anybody calling their baby ugly. 
magically they will go back in the middle of the night they'll wake up and they will fix it yeah. because they have to take pride in their work but when they are disconnected so many layers down yeah and they see customers as a story on a board or as a you know uh, and it's like fix this issue in that way it's such a there's no empathy uh, there's no connection um, it, you know it drives meaningful work so those are the kinds of things i challenge teams to do today i say create that environment collaborate well with your engineers nobody's stopping you from from taking your engineer out for a drink and taking them to go talk to customers nobody's stopping you from uh, working collaboratively uh, uh, to solve the problems or you know spending enough time in cycles and iterations and trying out frameworks to see if you can uncover a solution because if the environment improves and you don't have this muscle then you you, you start yeah. to break trust again exactly. it goes right you know, I'm going to tell you what to do because the last time we gave you to grow by 20%, we didn't grow for 10 years, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Amazing, Christian. Any any parting thoughts? Uh, look, uh, I, I love product. I always say, and uh, Mick probably sees me wearing a shirt here, that product is hard. And I tell people, if product is not hard, you're probably not doing it right. But if product is not fun, you're probably also not doing it right. It is absolutely the most rewarding job in my entire career. It's been, there's nothing more meaningful than trying to solve problems for others. And uh, um, what a rewarding opportunity to do that, to to uncover the latent needs, the hidden needs people might have, to really put yourself in their shoes and think about how you can make their lives better in a meaningful way and to participate in a group of people that are empowered to do that. So, you, you know, I want people to always stay true to what the job is, which is not validating ideas, which is not helping a bit, but which is really about creating customer delight, solving problems for them, which in turn helps our business succeed. So meaningful work, stay focused on why it matters and let us know how we can help. Amazingly put out. That was that, that was beautiful, Christian. Thank you so so much. And uh, we'll uh, we'll put some links into where people can reach you for follow up. So thank you so much. A huge thank you to Christian for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Mick Plus One or Project to Follow. You can reach out to Christian on Twitter at CIDIODI via LinkedIn, or you can email him at christian at svpg.com. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product in the book. And remember, all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Until next time.